rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin. With me today is Deacon Ronnie Lostavica, a deacon of the Diocese of Austin in Texas, part of the restorative justice ministry for our diocese. And today, as we have in the past, we'd like to present a series. And our series is going to be on a topic that not everybody finds all that easy to discuss. But uh, from our experience in working with our Catholics in the prison system, both the inmates and the officers, it's one that is good to talk about. And it is the subject of suicide. It's a subject that has become increasingly on our minds as the numbers of souls who are taking their lives in our prison system have most certainly increased over the years of COVID, as well as among other folks as well. And what we find is that this leaves so many of our Catholic faithful in the prisons left with dealing with suicide of people that they have known, or perhaps they're in a state of uh, affairs themselves where it's beginning to look like something that they could consider. We have a wonderful series from the Knights of Columbus. It's the Veritas series, and there's a pamphlet that they produce that's uh, got clinical uh, psychologists behind it. And we're going to walk through that pamphlet. It's on coping with suicide is the name of it. You can get it yourselves. We have it in the prisons. And we're going to appeal to our saints and to those who have gone before us that have helped those with mental illness. We're going to go through the pamphlet. Uh, We pray that it's something that you can hear and receive for yourselves that will be especially helpful if you're dealing with the aftermath of suicide or if you're contemplating, because the Lord and His love and mercy is there to help with compassion and with healing. And towards that end, I thought we would start uh, with a prayer from St. Dymphna, a patroness of those Uh, who deal with mental and uh, illness and nervous disorders. And so we pray. St. Dymphna, great wonder worker in every affliction of mind and body, I humbly implore your powerful intercession with Jesus through Mary, the health of the sick, and our present need, the need of those who are struggling with the aftermath of a suicide, of someone they know or love, the needs of those who may be contemplating this act in a time of suffering. Dear St. Dymphna, martyr of purity, patroness of those who suffer with nervous and mental afflictions, beloved child of Jesus and Mary, pray to them for me and obtain my request. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. And Deacon Ronnie, I'd ask you to kind of start us off with uh, the beginnings of what this pamphlet offers on the, uh, the notion of suicide in and of itself. Well, thank you, Father Harry. We we know from this uh, uh, series from uh, the Knights of Columbus on suicide that uh, suicide takes the lives of more than 30,000 Americans annually. And for every suicide, it's estimated that an average of six people are intimately affected and may continue to grieve for the departed for many years afterwards. And even more to it than the mourners of other types of sudden death, these survivors of suicide tend to experience an intense bereavement that's complicated by the difficult feelings of of grief and shame. So although not a a comprehensive source uh, on suicide, this booklet that you cited at the beginning of of today's program uh, from the Knights of Columbus is is an excellent um, source for us uh, to be able to uh, offer anyone uh, who, um, in its attempt to help the survivors and those who are concerned about them. 
So um, there, there are going to be uh, those questions, those doubts that are commonly arise in, in the attempt to come to terms with the bereavement by suicide. And for those who are worried about the possibility of suicide in themselves or others, uh, this, this pamphlet uh, includes sections on how to recognize the warning signs and what to do about them. So we're going we're gonna to flesh those out th- today and or through these series or these episodes. But um, I just, uh, and also, uh, too, uh, there's a, we're going to speak a little bit about the uh, suicide uh, intervention with teenagers. Uh, and so um, I guess the question that uh, we should begin with is, why does someone commit suicide? And it's the question that everybody asks. I think we all have our own sensibility on what the answer to that question is, but I really love the way that this Veritas series by the Knights of Columbus uh, answers that question. And they say this, although some of the deceased leave notes which attempt to explain their suicide, generally a number of factors precede such a drastic decision. And it is a drastic decision. This is the taking of a life Uh, Most people who commit suicide, they say, are not choosing death itself. That's probably something I hope that would be consoling for those of us left behind, uh, maybe with some anger feelings uh, towards them leaving. It isn't so much that they were choosing death itself. Often they are simply attempting to alleviate severe pain, whether physical pain or psychological pain. And uh, before I move on with that, you can, Ronnie, just you and me uh, back and forth. Okay, so they're simply attempting to alleviate severe pain, whether physical or psychological. For all the rest of us who are walking with people in the incarcerated state, and for those of our listeners who are not in the incarcerated state, but they're walking with people who are in severe pain, either physical, psychological, maybe even spiritual, or all of the above— um, we, we have a sense uh, of being able to share with them that pain. But I wondered if maybe you could give, without violating confidences or anything, uh, a sketch of what severe physical or psychological pain would look like inside of a prison. What, what uh, I think most of us might imagine it, but we just don't give too much thought to what that daily life is like. Why would my loved one, if they, he or she is incarcerated, have this kind of potential to have severe psychological or or physical pain in a prison setting? Well, I think that um, none of us can possibly understand what that setting's like unless we're we're in there. Um, But for those that are, um, they can at least have some sense of direction where this may be taken, this person. In in regard to, um, is it you said so well, and that most people are not choosing death itself, but they're just trying to uh, escape, to alleviate the severe pain that they're in. Even though it's temporal, um, it feels like it's eternity. And um, well, we always say that at this point uh, that um, we should never lose our joy, and our joy comes from Jesus Christ. And I think when we, we lose that sense of hope, um, then we become uh, the evil one slips in and tries to convince us that this is not a good place. You know, you can get out of here and, and all these alternatives to the present environment. But um, we always have to redirect and keep ourselves back to the situation that, that say that this is not going to define who I am, nor is this going to be the, the place where I'm consigned forever. Even in those moments of, of it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a place that, um, it's it's a very dark place to say the least, uh, 
and one that um, most oftentimes um, they feel like there's just no other way out. And that I've, I've got, this is, this is the decision that I've made, and um, this is what I'm going to tend to do with it. Within the prison life that there is no other way out, um, there's things that I know that our incarcerated flock look forward to on any given day, the bright spots in their lives, like commissary, which is the place where they can go and purchase items that uh, aren't just given to them uh, by chow or, or that kind of thing. And um, those are those little perks, like a, like a soda uh, or like a candy bar or something like that. But let's say I'm indigent or the, the category that's known as indigent, meaning I don't have anybody that's putting money on my books, so I don't really have any source of income where I can go to, to a commissary. That could potentially be one of those ways in which a dark place gets even darker. I think another moment in the live, lives of our, our incarcerated that could put them in this uh, place of pain with, with feeling like there's no other options is if they've come up for parole and the parole hasn't been granted. And their next opportunity for parole, they are told, is not going to be for one year or two years or three, but maybe four or five. I think that can, can, can put people in a, in a place of pain as well. Um, sometimes when you get moved from one prison to another, you've established a support system in one prison. Uh, your family knows where you are. They know how that prison works. And now all of a sudden you're uprooted. It takes them a while to find out where you are. Uh, that support system gets disrupted. A lot of times that can can be one of those those markers that put people in an even darker place. And for each one of these things that I described that are unique to prison life, on the outside of prison, these things happen as well. I have to move for a new job or I lose a job. Um, I have a strained relationship with my spouse. My children and I are fighting, whatever it might be. And, and through this COVID time, with so many changes and losses and recognizable rhythms of life just going straight out the window, and now we're all kind of seeking that so-called new normal, and yet it really hasn't settled in yet, uh, it can uh, put us in those vulnerable spots where, where everything feels a, a little darker than usual. And, and so what do we do? Well, we, we try things. And as the pamphlet says, we, they may have tried other unsuccessful means of ending their suffering, again, physical, mental, spiritual, leaving them with a sense of hopelessness in which suicide becomes a real option to end their anguish. So not a decision for death, but a decision for relief. And commonly, as it says here, friends and family members of those who have committed suicide become consumed with unanswered questions about why a loved one may have taken his or her own life. It talks about feelings of guilt there. Uh, Deacon Ronnie, why don't you pick up with it there and, and, and help us uh, begin to address that idea of the feelings of guilt. Well, through the feelings of guilt resulting from these unresolved arguments or some other failures in the relationship with the deceased are understandable, but they're generally not an, an accurate um, explanation of the decision to commit suicide itself and can leave a survivor feeling unnecessarily responsible or guilty about something that was or in fact beyond their control. Uh, often it's not um, possible to discover with certainty why someone committed suicide. Sometimes there's a, a, a mental disorder, uh, perhaps unrecognized, such as depression. There's a bipolar disorders, um, substance abuse, and other mental illnesses that contribute to the act. Um, just use depression, for example. It affects a problem-solving ability to, and can um, distort thinking about one's self-worth. 
other mental illnesses such as disorders that could that cause uh, psychosis and that can distort the uh, sufferer's perceptions of reality, um, sometimes result in suicide. Of course, we have alcohol and substance abuse that also increase the risk that someone might uh, choose to commit suicide. An accurate understanding of the um, thought process, which leads to an individual to suicide, is often difficult, if not impossible, uh, to attain. So... Those who commit suicide may feel uh, guilty about the effects of their decisions will have on their family or uh, friends, but their plan is such that suicide appears to be the only real option. And then you couple with that with mental illness when present uh, hinders one's ability to register the magnitude and the impact of such a choice. So generally a decision is not a deliberate choice to leave loved ones. Rather, it's it's more often an effort to... Um, just to escape this unbearable pain that they're in at the moment. And that seems to be the key, at least in this first section, answering that that fundamental question, why does someone commit suicide? Because for most of those who will never have that come across their minds, even in their darkest moments, that's a question that's really difficult for them to apprehend. But going back through what you, you were speaking about just now, Deacon Ronnie, pain is at, at, at the, the chief part of it and not understanding how can I bear this pain in a way? And, of course, you mentioned earlier uh, the fundamental relationship with Jesus is certainly one way to change the, the narrative. That, what it, that is to say my mental uh, thought process about what does this pain represent to me, uh, that the pain of Jesus c- connected to my pain is, is one of those, those remedies. Um, but the other piece here is that for those who are left behind, again, this wasn't a decision about death. It was a decision about relief. And when we're talking about folks in prison, and a lot of you you ladies and gentlemen that live in prison know this from the people that you're around, by the time I get to prison, especially if I've committed more than one felony, uh, which is a high number of, of our flock that, that are in there for more than one felony, I've been in a lifestyle where the risk of pain is very high. I've already had pain from um, a family of origin, uh, maybe I was prostituted by my parents. Maybe my parents were drug abusers and they got me using drugs early in my life. Maybe I grew up on the streets where there's a lot of physical altercation. People start getting beat up a lot and they, they get hit in the head. Uh, their their mental processes, you know, begin to, to not be as good as they, they were when before their abuses began. A lot of the narcotics that get consumed can do uh, permanent damage to people's ability to reason through. All of the above and, and those clinical uh, categories that Deacon Ronnie cited um, with the, the psychoses, bipolar, depression, all of these things can begin to crowd around that answer as to why a decision to take my life looked like the best idea uh, compared to other options that, that might be there. One of the things that certainly is a very natural instinct for anybody that's been around someone who has committed suicide. And now, uh, if it's my loved one, if it's my bunkie, uh, whatever it might be, what could have been done to prevent this? And that's the next uh, section in this pamphlet. They ask that fundamental question, why does someone commit suicide? And then they move on to what could have been done to prevent this? Uh, And it starts out with this. After the suicide of a loved one, family members and friends are often left to deal with a mix of difficult feelings. In these cases, 
it is natural for family and friends to question whether they could have prevented the death. And conflicting ideas within a family about the factors leading to a suicide can strain relationships. And so, Deacon Ronnie, what do they say is a good way to, you know, now maybe the relationships are strained. What what should we do in that moment? Uh, one word's patience. Uh, patience, um, patience, and more patience with one another is essential. And staying connected without assigning blame is the other to oneself or to the other is uh, vital in supporting uh, one another through the grieving. As in many other circumstances in life, the best course of action seems obvious when looking back. But certainly anyone who recognized tendencies towards self-harm in a loved one would take drastic measures to prevent its, its occurrence. But in hindsight, many signs that clearly indicate that a loved one has, was thinking about suicide may not have been, at the critical time, particularly alarming. And furthermore, even with extreme vigilance, one cannot always prevent or control what another person chooses. And I think that's one of the things that I've noticed in just the years of particularly working in restrictive housing environments is the uh, change that you see in a person's um, pattern of life. Um, one of the things in restrictive housing that is very important is communication because it's been taken away from you. I don't have access to the phones anymore. I may not be getting a, a, a rather su- regular supply of JPays from my family or my loved ones. So there's that, that little bit of a disconnect that's happening. And then I start getting to see changes in, in how I'm doing my, my day-to-day, um, particularly uh, when we uh, think about uh, how valuable property is. When you talk about a couple of things that are of significance to, to um, your, your life there is, of course, you mentioned commissary earlier, but also my property. My property has great value to me because that's all I have in terms of a tangible thing. And um, I start giving that away. That's going to be a little bit of a clue that, that things are changing in my life. Um, and that, um, you know, I may not, they may, that may not be that big of a deal to my neighbor, the, my bunkie, but, but it's something that's happening. That's a reality that, that, that's on the, on the shelf there. So that's, that's another thing that, that we may not have been aware of, you know, it's, but in looking back on it, we can say, yeah, I could see where that was happen, happening at the time. It's not uncommon for the loved one of a suicide victim to assume, uh, this unwarranted culpability, uh, if, what if I forced her to get help? Or what if I visited them more often? You know, what if I called you more often? What if I wrote you more often? If I only had fought, if I hadn't fought with him uh, this morning when I talked to him on the phone, if only I'd gone uh, to see him last weekend during visitation, uh, some of these what ifs and only if thoughts can become obsessive and, and they're often. Um, the most devastating hallmark of grief for the survivor of suicide. It's it's normal to replay the scenes and the conversations with the loved one during the grieving process, but when those self-blaming thoughts pervade, they can cause great harm. So we as survivors need to seek professional help with managing these uh, these uh, reoccurring pattern, patterns, and that could be a great aid in, in one's moving forward in one's grief. Uh, it's an essentially important uh, to remember that committing suicide is an individual decision. Accepting the free will of the other, including their freedom to make a bad decision, 
can be very difficult, and it is. And although required to prevent tragedy insofar as one is reasonably able and to be our brother's keeper when possible, it is not always possible to save loved ones from themselves. So this is a reflection upon one's love and care for a person. So no one can be held accountable for an event that was impossible to foresee. So let's say that one again. No one can be held accountable for an event that was impossible to foresee. And one of the reasons we're going to go through the signs, and we'll, we'll hit them more than once in the episodes of this series, is to assist ourselves in beginning to know things that just by our common sense, we really would not have thought would be signs of somebody potentially making this individual decision to take their life. And the giving away of property is, is something that, as Deacon Ronnie mentioned earlier, and, and you know we're all very attached to our things. Um, in prison, uh, the best I can describe for our friends listening that are, have never been in prison and don't uh, have much of a feel for it, in prison, that is hyper, hyper, hyper exaggerated. Uh, just consider how much you're being taken away. You're taken away from your loved ones and in an isolated place called a prison. Uh, You're taken away from individual identity in many ways because you're wearing the same clothes that everybody else is wearing every single day. Uh, You have the decision about what kind of food you're going to eat taken away from you. Yes, you get food provided, but you don't get to really make a choice about what that food's going to be outside of dietary restrictions. Uh, You have a lot of self-determination taken away. But when you can identify those one things that you have a sense of personal control over and care for that aren't supposed to be taken from you, i.e. your property, those things become very, very, very important. Those are letters from home, religious material, uh, certain items that inmates are allowed to have that get sent to them, etc. And so if somebody starts to give those away, different than, oh, that's nice, they're just being selfless and in, 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 uh, learning how to live with less in, a say, a Franciscan kind of orientation, um, that's what a healthy mind would say. But a person in deep pain that isn't so healthy, um, it it's definitely can, can be a sign. So uh, even if some mistake was made, it's essential to remember that death was never the intent. I think that's going to be hard for some of us to accept um, because you could say logically, well, what are you talking about, Father? They took their life. Why? How can you say death wasn't the intent? Well, let's go back to what the, the material, the pamphlet says earlier on. It's not about taking... Uh, embracing death. It's about embracing relief from pain. So sometimes those who are planning suicide seem to feel better once they have decided upon a course of action, suicide, because they believe that they have finally found an answer to their problems. This temporary lift in spirits can give those around them, those of us left behind after they take their life, can give us the impression that things have improved for that person, even if the tendency towards suicide was known. And isn't that the way we all are? We care about somebody. We see something's off. We even maybe start to think, gee, I hope they're not thinking about harming themselves. And then we see an improvement and we all kind of go, okay, um, I guess the care that I lent and the things that we've suggested that they do have had their impact and we're, we're out of the woods. They're, they're finally done. But this is saying, no, that could be a sign that they actually have decided on suicide, and that's where their sense of release comes comes from. 
Uh, furthermore, because many people who suffer from depression and anxiety do not commit suicide, failing to anticipate that a loved one might decide upon another course of action is not surprising. In other words, those of us left behind, if you already know they have a mental health condition, then you would cons- you, most of the time I think we, we tend to just kind of go take the easy way and say, well, this behavior or that behavior must be because of this mental health condition that they have shared with me, not representative of them contemplating suicide. And so we still don't get the red flag going up. And what does it say right after that? Well, the legitimate concerns about the personal mistakes should be taken uh, to the sacrament of reconciliation. They should avail themselves to a confessor for absolution and, um, and for um, his objective view of the situation. I think for many uh, survivors of suicide, the level of self-blame uh, is decreased, or does it, uh, nor does it, it aid survivors. So rather, it can be a hindrance to healing and uh, a self-trap to self-contempt uh, and depression. So com- to combat the temptation um, to self-punishment and to hold on to the guilt, uh, try to refocus and, and help others through education and suicide prevention. Reach out to those who may be suffering from suicidal thoughts or, and to other survivors or who may be grieving. And choose another issue or channel uh, energies in a constructive manner. And I think that's one of the things that um, if there's not a, any, I think the biggest takeaway from this, this segment is, is to realize what suicide is not. You know, it's not a, a desire for me to end my life. It's a desire for me to get out of whatever I'm in. So we, I think we, we as, as uh, companions of those with each other on the journey, it, it's all temporal. It's all temporary. But our true home is in heaven. And so we can refocus. We can say, look, look, I, I can't possibly know how you feel right now. But whatever we, it's just going to be temporal. It's temporal. And, and try to move them and have them redirect. And especially when folks are living in a very difficult and hard environment, there's a very unique and distinct uh, need for um, a rule of life that says, that, you know, here's some boundaries that I'm not allowing to get outside of and I'm not allowing stuff to get in, into either. And I think that's one of the, one, one of the things that, that we get ourselves in trouble is that we, we allow stuff to come in. You know, we open these doorways and, and all of a sudden we're, 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 we're caught and, and we're, we're at our own um, direction, so to speak, and how to solve this. And that, I think that's where we get into trouble. But I think we have to, our merciful and loving God does not desire one's prolonged torment uh, over uh, uh, some, someone's taken their life or a tragic event and he wants his children to be at peace. So I think that's for, for those who are complicating suicide or even for those who are survivors, uh, that's the one key word to know, that God wants us to be at peace. And if reflecting upon this and, and, and other readings, uh, talking to other people and talking to them about the sacrament reconciliation have not eased the feelings of guilt, then it's a time to go for additional support. And many have found this support by meeting with counselors individually, which in some of our units is, is uh, easier to, to get at than others or along with other family members, which may or may not be a piece of support available to you as an inmate. Uh, just depends on if your family's close by, if they're disposed to come. Uh, maybe you don't have an ongoing relationship with them. But we do know that it, within uh, our, our groups and, and the different prison units, and, and certainly those of us who live outside, there are, quote, other family. Uh, they're not our blood kin, but they're people that 
uh, are there as as members, and they can uh, become part of what might constitute a bereavement support group. Or if you can actually find a bereavement support group, or if those who are providing religious services to you can bring in a bereavement uh, material to help you with that. And there, the group members will be familiar with the struggles particular to survivors of suicide. It's fine to begin by listening to others at group meetings, but eventually being able to share one's personal experience with those who truly understand can be a great relief and consolation. So word there is those who suffer after someone has committed suicide in a given unit, a pod, whatever it might be, find others who are feeling the same way, get together and talk about it, and then let Jesus in and get the darkness out. In our next segment, we'll start with, does the person who commits suicide go to hell? Big question for a lot of people inside and outside prison, and the merciful God definitely has an answer for us. Do you like to close us with a prayer, Deacon Ronnie? Yes, I close with a prayer from our Holy Father, Pope Francis. After praying the Midday Angelus on October 10th of this year, he prayed. I'd like to remember our brothers and sisters who suffer from mental illness and also victims, often young people, of suicide. Let us pray for them and their families so that they are never left alone or discriminated against, but instead are welcomed and supported. Brother, will you walk with me?